Hello, and welcome back to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, media, and technology in Asia. This is your host, Carol, and today we are covering a new topic that we have never covered before, and that is China and its two sessions, the country's most important political meetings of the year. And because it's the first time that we're covering this topic on our show, so we got some help. We invited Zhou Xin from South China Morning Post. Now, Zhou Xin is the political economy editor from SCMP. Welcome to Analyze Asia. Thank you, Carol. So, Zhou Xin, this is the first time that you're on our show, and our listeners would love to learn a bit more about you and your background. So how did you start your career? I started my career, you know, as a journalist at Reuters, covering Chinese economy there for five and a half years. Then I joined Bloomberg. I also covered Chinese economy based in Beijing. And in these uh, combined 11 years, I think I covered 10 National People's Congress, this uh, annual thing. Yeah, in 2015, I joined SMP right before Jack Ma announced his uh, uh, big deal of this newspaper. And uh, now it's my uh, sixth year of uh, at SMP. Wow, I'm so glad that we have someone as um, a seasoned as you to talk about this uh, topic on the show. So again, what is your current role and what do you cover for SMP? Well, my current title is uh, political economy editor because both political economy in it, because, you know, it's very difficult to separate politics from Chinese economy if you're looking at China's growth. It's a kind of combination of uh, economic policy analysis and also how Chinese economy is doing on the ground. So it's a very exciting beat. And this is a question that we always ask um, professionals on the show is what are some lessons that you can share from your career journey with our audience? Well, I think you have to keep focused on one thing. And if you really think you can do this and you just uh, keep moving on on this. Uh, when I uh, started my career by that time, I mean, China is starting to show that it's going to have the potential to uh, be an, an important play on the international stage. But uh, by that time, I mean, still most of the mainstream uh, English media still focus on more of, uh, you know, the the weird parts of China, you know, not many uh, serious journalists, you know, looking at Chinese economy or Chinese uh, economic policies. So, you know, so this is a kind of becoming a, a niche for me. So I have to spend like the last 16 years uh, reporting on this beat. So it's becoming my advantage and also helped me a lot at SMP. So now let's dive into two sessions of 2021 and what it means for business and technology, which is what our audience um, care about the most. So can you first start by explaining what the two sessions are and um, what is its significance in the context to the outside world? Carol, because uh, this one, uh, on the surface, it looks like another huge uh, communist party gathering, you know, thousands of people sitting in the same same room and always raising their hands or clapping their hands and, you know, uh, just to uh, uh, approve everything that presented to them. But behind this uh, surface, this actually is very uh, interesting because this is an important part in how the communist party rule uh, the vast country. The two sessions uh, officially is called National People's Congress and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. 
which is, uh, of course, sounds very awkward and uh, sounds very boring. But in fact, it is uh, it is an important event for you know what decided behind the curtains, what decided at the small meetings for the Chinese leadership to present them to the to the whole country and more importantly to the whole world about their intentions, about their plans, about their strategic thinking of the country's future. And this is is particularly important because we have lots of background and uh, we heard uh, lots of talks about uh, how Chinese leaderships are thinking the East is uh, rising again and the West is uh, declining. And so what China is really trying to do, uh, you know, on multiple fronts, on its economy, on its uh, uh, technology, on the geopolitical fronts. And so there are many, many questions that uh, to be addressed or to be answered that matters for the future of the country and the future for the world. And this uh, event, the the two sessions, which last for just one week this year, because usually it lasted for two weeks, offers some clues, uh, or very important clues on what uh, the Chinese government is going to do in the next, uh, in, the, in the coming years. So if you care about like how uh, China is going to position itself, how China is going to deal with the rest of the world in the coming years, you have to, you know, pay attention to what they say, or what they try to say, uh, try to, uh, the message, try to deliver from these two sessions. Of course. And uh, as you mentioned, usually it's about a 10-day event, right? But this year, just like last year, because of COVID, it has been shortened to just a week. And so what was on the agenda for 2021? And I know 2021 is a pretty special year for the party as well, right? Because it's um, the 100th anniversary. Isn't it? Yes, exactly. Uh, because uh, the two sessions uh, usually it's lasting for ten days, eleven days. I think I have the longest one for thirteen days, but this year is uh, uh, seven days. You know, due to the COVID nineteen, and have to cut the kind of uh, social distancing rules within the greater of the people. But still, uh, importance is not reduced. Uh, usually, the National People's Congress is to approve the government work report and also approved reports from the Economic Planning Commission and uh, top courts. But this year was particularly important because there's another key document approved by the National People's Congress. This is a 14th five-year plan and 2035 China vision. This is a plan, but this is a huge plan. I mean, this is basically what the Chinese government is trying to do in the next five years. It is, uh, on one hand, it is very broad. It's about its strategic repositioning of uh, China in the world and uh, in history. On the other hand, it's also very detailed. It listed all the, like, you know, what kind of airports they were built, what kind of uh, water dams they're going to build in the next five years. It's also very long, isn't it? It's like 65 chapters. <laughs> Yes, it's very, very long. <laughs> and Kara, as you know, you know, these are the kind of plans for outsiders. Some people will belittle this, you know, the Soviet Union made its, uh, you know, 12 five year plans, but didn't stop it from collapsing the 13th five year plan. But for China, I think you have to be more, more, more serious. Given the economic weighting, given the uh, technology capabilities, given the military power of China, and whatever they say certainly carries the weight and carry an impact for the rest of the world. That's right. And I know, like we mentioned, it's a 65 chapter document, plenty for most people to read. And I'm not sure if there is an official English version released, actually, because I haven't been able to find one. I'm not sure if you know. So for those who are not going to have the time to read this very important document, can you briefly discuss you know, the key takeaways from the two sessions with respect to the five-year economic plan and how it impacts specifically business? business and technology development in China. 
Uh, yes, uh, there are two takeaways. If there are, uh, you know, give me five minutes to break this down. The first one is China is becoming more confident and want to rely more on itself for future development. This is called dual circulation strategy, which means, you know, after so many decades of relying on exports, you know, relying on selling products to America and to Europe, to Japan for China's development. For now, China saying, oh, maybe it's time, you know, to look at our own population. You know, we have 1.4 billion people, you know, basically the population is a combination of all the developed countries. So why can't we you know, have this big enough domestic market so that we don't have to rely, really look at the Americans or the Europeans to keep the huge manufacturing apparatus running. So this is one, one takeaway. You know, China will spend more time on developing a, a domestic consumer market. But this one has challenges too, because to do this, you need to create a huge, a big enough middle income group. And this group is the challenge for the Chinese government because the institutional arrangements are not there yet to merit the growth of a middle, middle class society. And the second takeaway is China's technological self-sufficiency. And this is a more uh, kind of response uh, to the trade war and to technology restrictions announced by the Trump administration now have been inherited by the uh, Biden administration. You know, China see very clearly a problem of choking points in its uh, technology development, especially its reliance on, say, semiconductor imports. For China, Huawei Technologies, a Shenzhen-based company, for instance, it used to be the pride of the Chinese uh, economy. It's, it's a pride for the Chinese people. But because the U.S. government had restricted Huawei's access to certain high-tech products, now uh, Huawei is struggling. And this is not only a kind of heavy blow economically, but also it's an insult to the, to the national pride. So China, uh, from President Xi Jinping and uh, for every local government, the challenge is that China must develop its own technology system so that it will not rely on, or it will not put itself at the mercy of, uh, of Washington. You can see this is already translating lots of policies on the ground. For instance, the government is showering uh, fiscal subsidies and other preferential policies for chip projects. For if you want to set up a semiconductor factory, basically you're welcomed in a red carpet of everyone. And I think Beijing know that there will be lots of wasteful investments, there will be lots of overcapacity, and not every project will be successful. But still, China is, is going to take the cost and still do it. So this is going to be have far-reaching impact on the whole like industrial uh, layout. So if you are technology intensive, if you can have the potential, if your factory can help China to increase security of its value chain, you know, certainly you will have lots of blessings from the Chinese government. And I want to uh, dive a little bit deeper into the uh, technology aspect. So you mentioned, you know, uh, the development of semiconductors, you know, chip design, etc. Um, what are some other key areas that China plans to focus on, uh, whether it's in the next five years or even for the longer term? Well, I think in the Ting's five-year plan, they listed several, seven kind of area of uh, technology that China will focus on, and also like eight areas of uh, key area to upgrading the manufacturing. So you can find these, uh, let me read the uh, 14th five-year plan just by, by my hand to see if I can still find them. <laughs> so basically, this is, for instance, uh, just to give you some examples about the technologies they want to, they want to really focus on. Artificial intelligence. This is the number one, because artificial intelligence for China is very important because it's technology for the future. And Xi Jinping has personally said 
you know, China has the advantage of becoming a leader in global artificial intelligence technology because China has a huge like database. You know, if artificial intelligence is machine learning, right? Yeah, the machine learn from the da- data, and in China, as as just said, have 1.4 billion people. You know, have a certain a huge data pool. So, which means every China has the right algorithm that the machine can learn very quickly. So, artificial intelligence is one key area. And secondly is quantum computing, quantum information. And this group is the future as well, you know, when people are making phone calls or when have this communication, this group is the next, uh, next generation technology so that China can ensure it's secure and also reliable communication system, you know, this hack-proving communications. And then the third I just mentioned is semiconductors. And interestingly, because of the COVID-19, because of the coronavirus, China has also highlighted the area of uh, medical science. This is one thing that matters to the health of the people. So China has, is trying very hard to improve. And also uh, are certain areas about genetic technologies and biotechnologies. This matters to China's strategic thinking about security. I mean, in the future, maybe China is foreseeing a kind of more hostile environment. There will be conflicts here and there. Uh, There will be more uh, confrontations against uh, the United States and other Western countries. So China has to make sure that everything uh, is under under, under Beijing's control. And one area is actually about grains, you know, the seeding, uh, etc. You know, China plants lots of corns. But, you know, the seed corns are imported from the United States. It's uh, uh, genetically modified, maybe. China plants lots of wheat, but, you know, wheat are coming. The seed of the wheat, some of them are imported. So China is really trying to, like, develop its own seeding and uh, biotechnologies in this, in this aspect. And uh, the other things, the last thing, which is not certainly the least, is to some extent China is also trying to be like the Soviet Union in the 1960s or 1970s. You know, China has to be seen as a, as a, as a leading technology power in terms of these very expensive uh, projects into space or into deep ground into the uh, Earth. And these, these projects may not generate uh, profits or generate financial returns immediately or in short term, but China has to be seen as uh, one of the leading powers in these technology aspects. So you expect China to send more rockets and the satellites into space in the coming years. Gotcha. What about green economy or green technology? Are there any plans um, in that direction? This is a very important is carrier just to get on the point of China conventional wisdom is China's development model is too dirty. You know, it's uh, it's basically polluting a lot by you know empowering its economic growth by burning uh, lots of coal. And China is certainly the largest emitter of uh, greenhouse gases. For Xi Jinping, he has to to change the situation. But the whole, you know, the whole country's system, the whole country economic machine is still attuned to this kind of co-centered energy structure. So she has making very bad announcements to the whole world that China will reach carbon neutrality by 2016, 60, sorry, and also to reach the peak of carbon emission by 2030. And these are the two self-imposing uh, targets uh, China upon itself. This shows a kind of commitment to a serious commitment to green development and to carbon neutrality. And for now, I think every local government and every state-owned enterprises has got the message that China is, you know, the, the top leadership in Beijing is really serious about carbon emissions. So everyone is on the move. So in the in the, in the coming years, we were going to see uh, lots of changes in, in the energy consumption structure and also environmental projects. 
if we look back a little bit longer into the history, this change is particularly interesting. Remember in 2009, okay, that was 12 years ago, and when the whole world gathered in Copenhagen to talk about climate change, and China was basically the one who received almost all the criticisms. Uh, because by that time, China think like, we should never accept any carbon emission caps because any of these are kind of cons- conspiracy from the developed countries try to limit our uh, development. You know, China have the rights to pump as much as carbon as it like into the air because China is a developing country and it's our rights, you know, to do so. You know, you can't blame us because uh, it's a historical problem, right? You have already, you have your uh, industrial revolution, you have developed your economy and by, you know, causing this global warming problem. And now you're asking China, a developing country, to do the, to do the hard job. So China cannot accept it. Yes. And, uh, and China developed lots of even like weird uh, indicators like per capita emission. You know, we should not look at the overall emission, but also per capita emission, then by that means, of course, China still has a long way to go. But now this kind of uh, you know, argument has completely been whitewashed from Beijing rhetoric. Basically, China has uh, realized that it's uh, in its own interest to cut emissions to protect the environment. So this is not something to please the Biden administration or to have to kind of short-term nice things so that the two presidents can talk when they meet. It's a, it's a real commitment to a, a new way of development. As Xi Jinping said, you know, at a key meeting, I think last month, he says, this issue, the carbon neutrality issue, matters to the eternal development of the Chinese nation. So this is a basically, nothing is more important than this. So we are going to see lots of investments and lots of push from the Chinese government in terms of green development in the next decade. As we would probably all agree, it's the best uh, change of direction or attitude when it comes to uh, the green economy. And because it's not only an internal issue for the Chinese nation, but for the entire world, right? Given, you know, how many people and uh, how much land uh, China covers. So let's come back to um, the business and the economy for a little bit. So one of the biggest changes this year is that they resolved they revised um, the GDP growth rate to 6% uh, instead of the 8 to 9% range, right? What is the rationale behind this revision, do you think? Well, I think 6% is still a very decent number. And basically, this 6% growth is uh, just to, to give a message to the local government, say growth is still important. But if we take an overall point of view, if you also look at the 14th five-year plan, there is no numeric target for GDP growth over the next five-year plan. So clearly, Beijing is playing down the importance of GDP. Its message is like GDP is not everything. But for now, we still cannot totally forget about GDP growth. But anyway, 6%, I mean, it's not as strong as 9%, but it's still very impressive. And I think the real GDP performance will be much better than that, given the low base in 2020. I think 8 to 9% is quite uh, possible for 2021 for China's economic growth. That's right. I noticed that uh, in the 14th five-year plan as well. So it's really a shift from a quantitative goal to a more qualitative goal for the long term. How is the Chinese government planning to you know, encourage innovation about enterprises and uh, optimize, for example, supply chain, which is something that uh, they're, they're They've been known for. I think the for innovation, it's really rely on from bottom up. You know, it can't be a top top down kind of planning. But the Chinese government is trying very hard to create this kind of favorable environment for it. For instance, if you are a high tech company, you certainly can ask for more uh, tax rebates. You know, can, you, you can ask for more support from the government. And also, China is trying very hard to bring some. Uh, 
new policies that will typically help high-tech businesses. Uh, for instance, China has its uh, uh, five-year plan of how to attract technology talents from abroad. If you are a top scientist in Singapore or in uh, Europe, you know you can be invited back to work for a Chinese institution or for a Chinese enterprise. Maybe the pay will be better. You know, maybe you don't have to worry about the schooling of your kids. Everything will be looking uh, will be taken care of. And these kind of the policies that the Chinese government is uh, sounds like Silicon Valley a little bit. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yes, Silicon Valley. For places like Shenzhen, I think it has a potential because A, the local government have the money, you know, it has a deep pocket, so it can give lots of help to these uh, knowledge researchers and scientists. And B, there are business potentials, you know. For any creative person or innovative person, you really want your ideas to into real products and uh, even to change the world. And Shenzhen is certainly one of these places can make your your dreams or make your uh, designs into a real world thing, and then uh, improve the society. That's right. They have a quite similar um, weather as well. <laughs> But、uh, also in regards to business, the Chinese government will increase lending from the big banks to small businesses by more than thirty percent this year. Right? What are the implications to the macroeconomic situation in China and in this aspect? Well, the background of these policies. I mean, these policies is that you know China's some economists argue that China's economic rebound from the thing is not balanced. You know, it's tilting towards. It's in favor. Of big state-owned enterprises at the cost of small businesses, you know, and、uh, small businesses matters for China's、uh, for China's economic growth, but they didn't really enjoy much support as a、uh, big state-owned enterprises from the government. The Chinese government is trying to give basically the banks a push, saying you really have to do this job, you know, you really have to help the small business. I think it's almost it's similar in every economy, you know,、uh, whether people are happy or not, whether society is uh, uh, stable or not, it matters to the moment.、Uh, Uh, that shops, you know, it matters to the, these how these kind of small food stands are doing, how these small factories are doing, how these small workshops are doing. So China is from this policy, you can see that the Chinese leadership is still、uh, a little bit worried about imbalance to rebound and want to、uh, give a lift to these small businesses. And because we covered this topic、uh, quite extensively in previous episodes before, which is you know fintech and what happened to and financial, so will the Chinese government continue to clamp down on fintech? You know, with respect to what happened with and where are they、uh, with their own、uh, antitrust regulations? And do we foresee more、uh, coming with the fintech companies in China? Well, I think the, it's kind of like perceived perception that the Beijing is trying to clap down on the fintech. But I think for the Chinese government, more of it, it's it's more of control risks. Certainly, China still want to enjoy this kind of convenience and and efficiency brought by this new technologies in the financial sector. But on the other hand, China is really worried that if Beijing doesn't move in a timely fashion, you know, there will, there will be risks that are beyond control of these companies. And at the end of the day, it could be spread out to the broader society. And by that time, you know, it is still the the Chinese government has to stand out and clean up the mess. So they are kind of in a preemptive measure, or、uh, it's more of like just to draw some lines in the sand so that everyone can compete on on the same rule. Because in the last decade, China's fintech businesses, online credit, and these kind of business has grown、uh, exceptionally. They are not subject to the same regulation at the banks or the established financial institutions. 
because they always say, oh, it's high tech, you know, it's something that you don't understand. It's a new business model and you have to encourage this. But if we look at in the past a few years, we can see that these kind of uh, technology enabled financial services, whether it's peer to peer lending or uh, online credit, they have started to show kind of uh, social and broader kind of economic cost. And this price is paid by the overall society. The Chinese government, after seeing these kind of troubles, is trying to lay some rules so that, you know, the fintech can be developed in a more regulated manner. And that doesn't mean the Chinese government is targeting uh, specific companies. I think for the Chinese government, it's more about like, kind of, you know, setting the rules uh, for the game instead of, you know, uh, kicking out anyone out of the game. Well, I, I totally understand. And next, I would like to ask some more larger picture questions, talking about some of the larger trends that have, you know, very long-term implications for the economy and for the business innovation and technology, et cetera. And first would be, you know, aging population. We all know that the Chinese birth rate is on the decline. And in a few decades, a very large percentage of the Chinese population is going to be 65 years and older. What is the Chinese government doing to plan for that? Kara, you mentioned a very important issue because, you know, when we talk about 14th five-year plan, 2035 vision, it's all rosé, it's all, you know, it has to be rallying because it has to be good. It's like, you know, our country's future will be great, you know, these kind of the key messages. But at the same time, you know, everyone knows if you look at the Chinese economy and there are certainly lots of challenges, there are lots of facts that could dragging down China's economic growth and clouding its economic future. And uh, the population issue, the aging population issue, is certainly one of the uh, elephants in the room. As you mentioned, you know, China is aging very quickly, uh, thanks to uh, economic development. It's more, possibly more importantly, you know, the ruthless implementation of this one-child policy for over three decades, and now it's a two-child policy. But still, it's unreasonable because it's basically restricting people's uh, rights to have more than uh, two kids. And for this, the Chinese government has started to see the problem. And that's why they are going to discuss kind of policy response. The first one is, of course, it's very knee-jerking response. It's a later retirement age. For now, Chinese men retire at the age of 60. And the Chinese women workers, if you are engaged in labor, you retire at the age of 50. If you are office, you retire at 55. And Beijing is looking at it and they say, well, that's too young for people to retire, isn't it? So they're going to extend gradually, I think, in the next maybe... 10 to 15 years, the final retirement age for Chinese men would be 65 and maybe for women would be equally 65. So this is one policy response. And the secondly, of course, China is trying to encourage the young couples to have more babies. For now, there's, on the one hand, they still have this quota that you can only have two. On the other hand, they are trying to say like, okay, you can, we will provide more kindergartens. You know, we are giving more holidays for new mothers and even new fathers. So this is, a, this is going to be very uh, interesting to see how effective the policies will be. But looking at the experiences, I mean, in uh, Japan, in South Korea, in Taiwan, in Singapore, it will be a very uphill battle for Beijing to fight to encourage new buses. In the coming days, I think in this week or next, the Chinese government is going to announce it's uh, the result of the census. And that would be very interesting to see how many people China actually have. For now, official figures say China still have 1.4 billion people, but there are already some demographic researchers saying, you know, China's uh, real population should be around 1.3 billion, which means China is already has already de the uh, this uh, the world's largest population to India. 
this is a, a momentous change, right? This is a what kind of water shading uh, if you're watching uh, worldwide population. It's a very big topic, and I don't think the Chinese government having all the answers for now. Gradually seeing the problem, and they are bringing up some new policies to handle it. But this this will be uh, something for us to watch in the coming decades. You know, it's not coming for the for the coming months. Meanwhile, we have to say that you know, although Chinese population yes is aging, the medium age is now possibly about 40 now. But still, uh, you know, the education of Chinese people has been much, much better than the previous generations. For a man born in 1970, for instance, his chance of going to a university could be 2%. But for for a boy who is born in uh, 2010, for instance, his chance of getting educated in a university will be maybe 70%. So this is something that you have to also factor in. Although the overall population is is aging very quickly, but China will have like more talents. The people will not necessarily working tilting plants or working a production line in a sweatshop factory. They can be more creative. They can create their own business. And if China can unleash this kind of creativity potential from a population, even though the young, younger generation are smaller, but if they have the better chances to shine, still the, the country's uh, future can still be bright. Now, you mentioned that uh, this is one of the elephants in the room. Is there another elephant in the room that you can perhaps point out oh, yes. uh, for our audience? Oh, yes. For instance, conflicts with the Western world. You know, the confrontation, how China, on the one hand, China will be the big player in the global economy, and it has a very intensive very close trade and economic relations with the rest of the world. But on the other hand, it has been increasingly diverted in terms of values and ideologies. Let's mention, you know, Xinjiang and Hong Kong and how China is going to reconcile its own strategies with uh, or the narratives with the Western countries, especially the United States, the European. These are the huge kind of challenges. And how the South China Sea is going to evolve. Will there be a military conflict? Or how China is going to take back Taiwan without war. How China is going to maintain that economic growth will be protected still when Beijing is exchanging sanctions against the uh, United States, UK, European Union, uh, Canada. And these are all kind of big questions for China's future. The third elephant in the room possibly is China's uh, the domestic debt. And according to some ex- estimates, China now has uh, the debt level is 300% of the GDP. And if with such a huge debt, you know, how China can maintain, still maintain its uh, rapid economic growth. If every debt has an annual interest rate 2%, and then 6% GDP means China can only just, you know, cover its debt. These are very huge issues and, and, and problems. And no one really had the answer because there are so many factors can affect uh, the uh, final outcome. And that's also one of the beauties of watching Chinese economy because it's, it's like you're watching an exciting movie, but no one really knows how the movie is going to is going to end. I can see that you really enjoy your job, and uh, I think that's awesome. And man, that that was uh, an elephant herd that you just uh, unleashed to our audience just now. So that brings me to our uh, to my next question: What are the implications of the policy proposal? Proposals in the 2021 two sessions for the rest of the world because um, our audience are um, are mostly mostly located outside of China. And what should these other countries look out for? I mean, for a foreign business community who wants to do business in China, who want to profit from China's development, I think one area is that you know 
one way to look at is uh, is what China's kind of future focus will be and what kind of role they can play. And for now, uh, as I just mentioned, you know, the two takeaways is one is a big domestic market and, you know, whether your products can be suited for the Chinese consumer demands to upgrade their living. And then the second takeaway is uh, technology self-sufficiency and whether, you know, your company, if you are part of this semiconductor value chain and what your product would be helpful for China to develop its own domestic semiconductor industry. These kind of, uh, these two areas, I think, would be, I think would be key. But at, at the same time, I mean, it's not as direct as this because even for instance as you probably watch these days you know China has this huge boycott against uh, H&M and Nike and Adidas uh, due to controversy over the Xinjiang cotton issue for foreign businesses who try to make profits or make business in China these kind of challenges will be more standing out in the coming years than the past couple of years because the whole country is becoming more confident and sometimes they, when they become more confident they also become more kind of sensitive to the challenges so these are the areas that uh, foreign brands and the company has to pay attention to yeah on the you know Xinjiang cotton issue which I will not um, comment too much on I think people have completely different context inside and outside of China and so this these conversations are just not even happening on the same field but that's what our jobs are right so whether you know it's to put out these podcasts or for SCMP to put out all these really important articles is to facilitate more of that understanding so that uh, China and the rest of the world can be at least on the same page discussing the same issues and and reaching some kind of uh, understanding. And we know that um, this entire two sessions, of course, covered so much content. So if our listeners, they wanted to learn more, um, because our time is, of course, limited in a podcast episode, where can they find out more? Oh, uh, SMP is definitely the answer. That's right. And I know well, that SMP... Uh, go ahead. Well, from the SMP, maybe can pay more attention to the Chinese government website and stuff like that. Because the challenging for overseas analysts or a business investor, it's very difficult to find any information from the useful information from the Chinese government website if you lack of this context. So you really rely on third-party institutions to give you the context and give explanation of what's going to happen. Because for these, for instance, the 14th five-year plan, it's... Even for me, uh, I'm uh, covering these kind of uh, documents for over a decade, but still sometimes I like can't understand what, what the Chinese government is really trying to say. So it's, it's kind of challenging. But I think if you keep reading, if, our, uh, if your audience keep reading publications like SMP, maybe after a few years they can have a better idea what's going on with about uh, Beijing's uh, policies <laughs> strategies um, there is you know what's written and sometimes that's not even available in English and then there is you know what they're really trying to say and what they're really really trying to say and it goes down quite a few levels and I know that um, SCMP has a dedicated two sessions page or site SCMP has kindly offered a one month free discount for one year subscription plan to all listeners of the analyze Asia podcast Podcast. Go to subscribe.scmp.com and enter the promo code ANALYZEASIA. Terms and conditions apply. Well, and that was my last question, Joycean. Thank you so much. You've provided definitely a lot of context and a lot of information to our audience. And just a, a few more closing questions. First of all, can you recommend anything that uh, you've read or have watched or seen that has inspired your life recently? 
Well, that's uh, challenging because I have, I'm reading a few his, uh, uh, I'm reading a few history books about China's past, and one book that really caught my attention is a biography of、uh, Su Shi. The author is、uh, is a very、uh, unique person. He was born in mainland China in the 1920s, I think, and later he went to Taiwan. He was put into jail in Taiwan, and then he spent the final parts of his year in the in the United States. And for this book, biography of、uh, Su Shi, the author is actually a scientist. He has no training in literature or history, and he writes this、uh, biography of this、uh, great Chinese poem simply because he. Find of sympathy or similarities of their fates, and that's why he wrote in such a touching way that you can almost, when when he was writing the stories happened, one thousand years ago, you can almost like feel、uh, he was writing the the stories about modern people, contemporary Chinese, like himself or even me, you know,、uh, how to deal with、uh, with the setbacks and obstacles in in life. And this is a very, very, very、uh, inspiring book for me for 2020、uh, because it has,、uh, by Chinese, has uh, like uh, nearly 3,000 pages. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's a huge book. But you never feel bored by this because it's、uh, one story after another, and it basically like it's teaching you when the world is so hostile and when you、uh, everything you cherished has been taken away from you and how you survive. And how you make your life worse these sufferings, and、uh, of course,、uh, you know Su Shi Su Dongpo is、uh, one of the famous, the greatest Chinese、uh, poets. So the whole book is weaved with these beautiful poems and explanations of why you know this kind of、uh, these processes, these lines, these sentences have specific meanings、uh, for the modern world. The one story I particularly、uh, impressed is that. Su Shi, at、uh, the age about forty, he was being thrown into the jail, and、uh, he had no idea whether he would be killed or not. After he was released、uh, from the prison, and how he started to cherish more about everything he has uh, uh, once held as not ordinary、uh, in the, the world, in terms of his relationship with the, with the brothers, his relationship with the friends. And how he see, you know, the the crowds, <laughs> you know, the the trees, and these are are, are very very uh, uh, interesting anecdotes. And、uh, I really enjoy the book much. I, I don't know whether it has an English copy or not, but I certainly recommend everyone to read this. I was just going to ask. So, what is the name of the book in Chinese? It's called Su Dongpo Xingzhuan. Gotcha. The new biography of Su Shi or Su Dongpo. And last question: Where can our audience find you? Oh, well, there's、uh, also a page on SMP, and、uh, I leave my email just there. And I'm always welcome to you know different views and inputs,、uh, you know suggestions, ideas, criticisms, and compl- complaints. <laughs> so yes, I'm always open. And that is our first, and definitely not the last time that we are going to be covering two sessions here on Analyze Asia. And I'm so thankful that we had someone as veteran as yourself, Joseph, to talk about this topic with us. And I'm sure our audience really appreciated your intake as well. So、um, thank you so much, Joseph, for coming onto the show. And I'm sure we will talk again in the future. Thank you, Kara.